Paul there writes, I commend to you Phoebe, our sister, who is a servant of the church in Centria, that you may receive her in the Lord in a manner worthy of the saints, and that you assist her in whatever business that she has of you. For indeed, she has been a helper of many and of myself also. Greet Priscilla and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus, who risked their own necks for my life, to whom not only I give thanks, but also all the churches of the Gentiles. Likewise, greet the church that is in their house. Greet my beloved Epinatus, who is the first fruits of Achaia to Christ. Greet Mary, who labored much for us. Greet Andronicus and Junia, my countrymen and fellow prisoners who are of note among the apostles, who also were in Christ before me. Greet Ampelias, my beloved in the Lord. Greet Urbanus, our fellow worker in Christ, and Stachus, my beloved. Greet Apelles, approved in Christ. Greet those who are of the household of Aristobulus. Greet Herodian, my countrymen. Greet those who are of the household of Narcissus, in, who are in the Lord. Greet Tryphena and Trophosa, who have labored in the Lord. Greet the beloved Parisus, who labored much in the Lord. Greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord, and his mother in mine. Greet Asyncritus, Phlegon, Hermas, Petrobas, Hermes, and the brethren who were with them. Greet Philologus and Julia, Narissus, his sister, and Olympus, and all the saints who were with them. Greet one another with a holy kiss. The churches of Christ greet you. Father, thank you for your grace to say those names. We, we thank you for your word. And Lord, I ask that you would help us in some way to comprehend, to understand why you would see it fit to include in Scripture these names, Lord. Lord, we recognize that every word of Scripture is important, has purpose, Lord, every jot and tittle. So there's a reason, and we pray that you'd help us to see in some way and make application from it that... These are people who this side of heaven, we will never know. We would never know of them if it were not for you counting them faithful for some reason to have them listed here. And so God, teach us. Lord, we pray that you'd continue to transform us by the renewing of our minds. The world has one way that we are to think, that we are to live, that we are to act and your word reveals a different way, a way that is completely contrary. So we pray that you'd give us wisdom, Lord, but not only wisdom, that you'd give us ability, ability beyond ourselves to be able to do the things that your word exhorts us to do, that we would be a clear and visible representation of your grace, of your mercy and your peace in a world that is in such desperate need of all of those things and many other things that only come from you. So God, work in us. We pray. We ask this in Jesus' name and all God's people agreed saying, Amen. Amen. You can be seated. How do you become a notable person in the kingdom of God? How does one become worthy of mention in eternity, in God's presence, in God's kingdom? Of course, we, we know the answer for our own world. We know how it is that someone becomes notable, famous, a celebrity in our day and in our world. Maybe if someone has great 
wealth, if they in our culture are an accomplished author or an accomplished actor or an athlete, those are things that make people worthy of note in our world and in our time and in our day. A person who has great political influence, a person that has power, people that are great business minds, that are entrepreneurs, that do things, that create things, make things that we are amazed by, they they become worthy of note. Some people, unfortunately, have gained notoriety because of their promiscuity. In our culture, some people have made a name for themselves because they've been caught with a prostitute or caught with a high-dollar escort, and therefore, that's how they have their notoriety. It's hard for us to imagine, but that's where they get it. Some people, they, they do a slip-up and they post the wrong thing on Twitter or on Instagram, the wrong picture that should have never made it there. Or another person, they become even more famous than they are because it was accidentally posted, a risque video of them on YouTube that now gets a lot of hits and views. Some people, because of their their loose morals, they they end up getting a name for themselves, or they will do or say off-the-wall things, and therefore they gain notoriety. We live in a time where... A single person with a cell phone that maybe has hardly no friends can become well-known because of the internet, the ability to gain an audience. I read an article this last week about a lady up in L.A. She's a mother of three. Uh, She's hardly known by anybody except that she has her cell phone and she tweets, and she tweets all kinds of funny things. And so in 140 characters or less, she's able to be really funny, and now as a result, she's gotten a book deal because she's funny. Hopefully your book is longer than 140 characters. We'll see. But, you know, I mean, it's just an amazing thing. And, and the reality is that we live in a time where these mediums, these online social media has made it possible for some of these things to happen, where some guy in Sweden comes up with a song, what does the fox say? And now, you know, he's well known all around the world. Or the Gangnam Style guy has 1.7 billion views on YouTube, which means that there's probably a... a, a few people in here that have seen it, I would imagine. And so, you know, these sort of things are out there, Facebook and Twitter and uh, Instagram, LinkedIn. How many of you have a social media account? Lift up your hand high. Come on, be honest. Most of you do. We all, all do. I do. I know. I'll be the first to admit it. It's filled with pictures of my kids constantly. You know that the American psychiatry group, they now have a thing called Facebook depression. I've talked about it before. Literally. <laughs> It's an identifiable problem, Facebook depression. It's normally a problem that young teenage girls have, but it is a problem where you put up a picture and you don't get enough likes on it or comments, and they're depressed because no one likes or comments on their things. And so, you know, I I don't know about you, but I'd sometimes wish that there's an unlike button on Facebook. But these tools, these things that are there, they are are, are successful as they are because they cater to our fallen nature, our desire to be known, our narcissistic desire for people to like us. We all have that desire. Whether or not we recognize it, whether or not it's identifiable in us, it's there. And these things cater to it in some level. That's why there are so many people that use these sort of things. And there are ways, and we know what those ways are in our culture, to get your 15 minutes of fame, your time in the limelight, your time on the stage. The Apostle John, in his first letter, 1 John, 
he, he reveals something very important to us. He says the lust of this world, the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, the pride of life, which all of these things are geared towards that. They're aimed at the lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. All of these things are passing away because this world is passing away. So even if you gain notoriety or celebrity, a position of celebrity or fame in this world, it's, it's always going to be temporary. It will never last for a very long time. Even if you do get 1.7 billion hits, there will be someone who gets 1.8. You know, there, there's always the temporality of this world. And so the fame, the celebrity, those things that maybe someone can gain in this life, it is temporary, but it begs the question, how can a person become eternally notable? How can a person become eternally notable? And I would suggest to you that in some part, Romans chapter 16, verses 1 through 15 answers that question. It's one of those passages in the Bible, there are a number of them where there are just names listed. Many of Paul's letters end with a salutation. This is Paul's salutation to the church at Rome, where he's saying hello or say hello, give greeting to so-and-so and so-and-so and so-and-so, these people that he knew. Not just passages like this, but I think of the genealogies of the Bible, a lot of people have a hard time when they start out their new year reading through the Bible. They get through Genesis and then they get through Exodus. Leviticus is tough. And if you make it through Leviticus, you get to Numbers. And Numbers is like a perpetual genealogy. And if you're strong enough to get back through Numbers, ultimately you get to First and Second Chronicles and you're back in the list of the names again. And it's just name after name after name after name. And sometimes we wonder, why are these names in here? Why is it that God saw it fit to have these names placed in Scripture? I suggest to you that God takes note. He takes notice of people. God is interested in people. And so when we look at this section of Scripture here in Romans chapter 15 that lists a number of names, there are 29 names, and some of them are not necessarily named. The sister of so-and-so, the mother of so-and-so, they're, they're listed in this passage. The brethren who are with them. So there's 29 names that are listed here in this passage in Romans chapter 16. And I think that in some way this reveals to us how we become notable in God's economy. We know what makes people noteworthy in our world, but what is it that makes a person worthy of mention, honorable mention in the kingdom of God? So look with me at some of the qualities that are mentioned in connection with the names that are written here. There are things like servants, servants, people who served the church and served God by serving the church, not just servants, but saints. Paul mentions an individual here in chapter 16, a guy by the name of Epineatus, who was the first fruits of Achaia. That means when Paul began preaching the gospel in the city of Corinth, the very first convert was this guy, Epineatus. Awesome that God takes note, Paul took note that now several years after the church at Corinth was planted and Paul wrote this letter, the letter to the church at Rome, he wrote it from the city of Corinth and now about five to seven years after the church in Corinth was planted, after the first convert came to Christ, Epinatus, now that guy Epinatus has left Corinth and he's a missionary in Rome. Awesome. 
So there are servants that are mentioned. There are saints that are mentioned. There are sacrificers that are mentioned. People who risked their lives. Paul mentions Priscilla and Aquila. And if you're a studier of the New Testament, you know those names because those names come up a number of times in the New Testament. You, you can't even imagine their names being separated. Priscilla is always with Aquila, her husband. Aquila is always with his wife, Priscilla. They were natives of Rome. At least Priscilla was a native of the city of Rome. They were kicked out of the city in the year 49 AD when the emperor of Rome, Claudius Caesar at the time, he made a decree that no Jew could stay in the city of Rome. And so they left and Paul met them when he came to Corinth to plant the church in Corinth in his second missionary journey. And now they're back in Rome because Claudius Caesar died in 54 AD and with his death came the death of that decree. And now they're back there and they have a church in their house. They gather together in a Priscilla and Aquila's home, and Paul says, they risked their lives for me, and the churches of the Gentiles are thankful because their willingness to sacrifice. So servants and saints and sacrificers, and then the King James word uses the, the word succorer, that it says that Phoebe, she was a succorer of the saints, a comforter is literally what it means in our modern vernacular. Servants and saints and sacrifices comforters. Ultimately, every single one of them had this in common. They were sinners saved by grace. Sinners saved by grace. So the things that make someone worthy of note, even if it's just 15 minutes of fame in our world, wealth, accomplishments, political power, uh, business prowess, whatever it may be, those things are not the things that make us noteworthy or worthy of honorable mention in the kingdom of God. It's a different set of realities. Jesus had some things to say about this. Jesus had a lot of teaching around this actual issue of desiring to be of note. You see, it is part of our fallen nature to want to be known. And the world says this is the track that you take if you want to be popular and you want to be known. But there's a different track for the kingdom of God known in eternity. Jesus speaks about this in the Gospels. You know, one of the interesting realities is that during the three and a half years that Jesus ministered here upon the earth, among his closest followers, those who were called his disciples, those who he ultimately appointed the apostles, the primary topic of conversation among those 12 men, when they were not specifically interacting with Jesus, the primary topic of conversation was who among them would be the greatest in his kingdom. They were jockeying for position throughout that time with Jesus about who would be the greatest. On a couple of occasions in the Gospels, Jesus even, he is seen as asking them, hey, what are you guys talking about? And they're like, oh, nothing. <laughs> nothing. I'm the greatest. Nothing, Lord, nothing. Here is this group, the inner circle, the groupies, if you will. Jesus' guys, guys that he specifically by name asked to be close to him, that they would come to be with him is what the scriptures say. So among all the multitudes, the thousands of people who followed Jesus that saw him cast out demons, heal the sick, raise the dead, who ate of the miraculous food that was provided to them when he fed the 4,000 and fed the 5,000, among all the multitudes, there were 12 guys that were near him, with him. They were with him when he was on boats on the Sea of Galilee. They 
they were with him when he was praying. They were with him in intimate times on the Mount of Transfiguration when he healed Jairus' daughter. Uh, there were those from that group of the 12. I, I'm absolutely certain that there were some people among the multitudes that looked at them and said, man, I, I'd like to be with that group. And because we know what we know about these 12 guys and their conversation among themselves, we know that they probably had some pretty fat heads about the fact that they were among the inner circle. On one occasion, the Gospels tell us that two of these guys, brothers, James and John, they came to Jesus and they said to him, this is actually in Mark chapter 10, verse 35, you can look at it later. Mark 10, 35, they said, Lord, will you give us whatever we ask? I don't know about you, but I'm always a little leery when someone comes to me and says, will you do me a favor? And I go, well, what is it? And why don't you tell me first what it is you'd like me to do? I'll tell you if I think I can do that. But it's funny that these guys say, Lord, will you give us whatever we ask? Like, there's a problem here. There's a discrepancy. Lord, give us whatever we ask. He, he inquires what it is that they're asking. They say this, would you grant that we be on your right and your left when you come into your kingdom? Essentially, they're saying, Jesus, you're the king, but can we be your prime minister and your defense minister when you come into your kingdom? I say defense minister because these are the same two guys who also, in another story in the Gospels, they're passing by a city in Samaria that was having an issue with Jesus, and they said, Lord, shall we call down fire from heaven and consume this city? Same guys. They didn't get the answer that they anticipated or at least hoped for when they talked with Jesus about this. So later in the Gospels, they get their mom involved in the thing, figuring, well, they, nobody can say no to mom. And so she comes to Jesus. She says, Lord, will you grant that my sons be one on your right and one on your left when you come into your kingdom? The scriptures tell us in the Gospels that the other disciples, the ten, they saw this when it happened and they were indignant is what the scriptures say in the King James Version. They were pissed off. Excuse my language. Seriously. It's the only way to grasp in our modern language what it means to be indignant. I hope you'll forgive me. They're mad. How dare you pull one of those? Getting your mom involved? Really? I mean, can you imagine the ribbing they got later? <laughs> Mom, seriously? But who's going to be the greatest? Now, you would expect, at least I would expect, maybe I'm thinking too much for you in this, but I would expect that this kind of jockeying for position, this desire to be great, you would expect that Jesus would chastise his disciples for this, rebuke them, say, what's wrong with you guys? Even look at them, you're, you're having your mom come talk to me? You would anticipate a rebuke, but you'd be wrong. Jesus did not rebuke this. It's amazing to me that he didn't judge their desire for greatness. Actually, quite contrary. Not only did he not rebuke them, he actually tells them the way to be great in his kingdom. You want to be great? This is how. Turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 20. Matthew chapter 20, sorry. The first of the New Testament books, Matthew chapter 20. We're going to pick it up at verse 26. There we read in the middle of the verse, look about the middle of verse 26, Matthew 20, 
Whoever desires to become great among you, let him be your what? Servant. Let him be your servant. Whoever desires to be first among you, let him be your slave. Turn just three chapters to the right, Matthew chapter 23. Matthew 23, look at verse 8. Actually, down at verse 11. Let me give a little context. Matthew 23, Jesus is rebuking the scribes, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the religious leaders of his day on several points in Matthew 23. He calls the Pharisees, the scribes, he says, you hypocrites. And then here in Matthew 23, there at verse 11, we read, he who is greatest among you shall be your what? Then the next verse 12, and whoever exalts himself will be humbled, but he who humbles himself will be exalted. So the teaching of Jesus, you want to be great? And his disciples are probably, well, no, 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 we don't want to be great. Yes, yes. You want to be great, then be a servant. You want to be exalted, then humble yourself. Move from there to Mark's gospel. I know I'm having you jump around, but I want to emphasize this. It's important. Mark chapter 9, verse 35. Mark 9, 35. Here's Jesus in the multitudes, and he calls the 12 to himself. That's what Mark 9, 35 says at the beginning. Jesus called the 12, and so you can almost see it. At least I sometimes visualize this as if it was a movie. And there they are in the multitudes, and Jesus says, Hey, uh, where are my guys? Peter, James, John, Bartholomew, Thomas, come, come over here. And they're, Excuse me, the master calls. <laughs> Gotta go. So you go, and they sit down. Jesus calls the 12 to himself, and they sat down, verse 35, and he says... If anyone desires to be first, and you imagine that the disciples, their ears kind of perk up. First? Yeah. Keep talking. Let's go. James and John pulled that little stunt the other day. Yeah. How shall we be first? If anyone desires to be first, he shall be last of all and servant of all. One more passage, Luke's gospel, Luke chapter 14, if you will, Luke 14. We'll pick it up at verse 7. Jesus here in Luke chapter 14, apparently he's been invited to a feast. It seems like it may have even been a wedding feast. Jesus often was invited to wedding feasts. Maybe that's because they knew that he made wine at the last one. And they say, come on, bring that guy. So there's Jesus. He's at a wedding feast. He tells a story. He's observing what's happening at this feast as people are gathering together. And you know how it is, even in our day. Weddings in their day were different than weddings in our day. The feast was quite a bit longer in their day in Jewish culture. But in our day, I don't know if you've had this experience. I was at a wedding a few months ago, and you go in, and it was a family wedding. One of my my wife's cousins is getting married. And so then you go up to the reception area, and there's a table with all these little name tags, and it shows which table you're at. And there's like 20 tables. And you're going, that's right. I'm at table number two. (laughs) Table two, please. Look at verse seven. You're getting a little peek into my own flesh, right? (laughs) Verse seven. So he told a parable to those who were invited. He tells a story. These parables had meaning. When he noted how they chose the best places. So he's observing and he's watching these people. They're choosing the best places. So now he says, I got a story for you guys. Saying to them, when you're invited by anyone to a wedding feast, do not sit down at the best place. Why? 
so that no one more honorable than you be invited by the master of the ceremony, by him, and he who invited him come to you and say, uh, excuse me, you're in the wrong seat. You need to go down. That's not your space. Why? Well, because you begin with shame to be taken to the lowest place. Verse 10, but when you're invited, go and sit in the lowest place. Take the lowest seat so that when he who invited you comes and says to you, friend, go up higher, then you will have glory in the presence of those who sit at the table with you. For, here's the application, whoever exalts himself will be humbled and he who humbles himself will be exalted. So the teaching is clear. Jesus' teaching is very, very clear in the Gospels. Who is great as Jesus teaches it? Well, he says those who serve, those who humble themselves, those who take that humble lower position will be exalted. In Matthew chapter 5 at verse 19, he says there that those who not only teach the word of God, but those who actually do it, they will be great in the kingdom of God. Now, there are people in our culture today who are great in the eyes of men because they teach the scriptures. And there's people who say, I want to be like that guy. But Jesus says, that's not what makes you great in my kingdom. What makes you great in my kingdom is if you actually do it. We say with even you know, moist eyes from time to time that there have been many people, unfortunately, who have had, had a notable, notable position speaking the word and yet their life didn't match up and then it came out to everybody saw that they didn't follow what they said. Jesus says, how do you be great in my kingdom? Not only do you teach the word, but you actually do it. You humble yourself, you serve. Jesus did not rebuke his disciples for desiring to be great. Instead, he said, this is the path to greatness in the kingdom. But here's the problem. The path to greatness in the kingdom of God is countercultural to our world. The path to greatness in the kingdom of God is unnatural to our sin nature. The world says this is the path to greatness, and you may take that path and actually get 15 minutes of fame in this world, but that will not get you notoriety in the kingdom of God. Jesus says this is the path to greatness in my kingdom as I see it. This is the only way for it to happen. It's hard. Why? Because it's unnatural. It's cross-cultural, countercultural. This world is given to self-promotion and self-preservation. But not only the teaching of Jesus, consider with me, if you would, the example of Jesus. You see, it wasn't just that Jesus taught this way. This is actually the way that he lived. Uh, in the passage that I read previously in Matthew chapter 20, verse 26 and 27, where we said, we saw whoever desires to become great, let him be your servant. He who desires to be first, let him be your slave. Then he says, then we read in verse 27 or 28, just as the son of man came not to be served, but to serve and give his life a ransom for many. So he's the example. Would you open your Bibles to Philippians chapter 2, a small book in the New Testament there right after the book of Ephesians, just before the book of Colossians, Philippians chapter 2. Look at verse 5. Philippians 2 verse 5, Paul, the same one who wrote the book of Romans, wrote this. He says, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. So be like-minded with Jesus. What was he thinking about? What did he do? It's seen by the way that he lived. Who, being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking on the form of a servant, a slave. Get this picture. This is phenomenal. This is telling us about Jesus, who the Bible reveals is God incarnate, God who exists in eternity, passed on into eternity forever. 
He's the King of kings, the Lord of lords. When the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 6 says, I saw the Lord high and lifted up, seated upon a throne. He saw Jesus. John's gospel tells us that at the end of John chapter 12. So Isaiah, 700 years before Jesus came here to the earth, he saw the preexistent one in eternity on a throne. So he's the King of kings and the Lord of lords. He is God. And yet we're told here in Philippians chapter 2, he did not see that position as something to hold on to, to grasp. That's what another English translation says when it says he did not consider it robbery to be equal with God. It was not something he had to hang on to, to grasp. But instead he let it go, willingly became a servant, made himself of no reputation. Now, imagine with me if you would. Most likely the most powerful position in the world at this day and age, is to be the president of the United States of America at this moment. Now, the president of the United States of America, when he takes the oath of office on January 20th of the year that he takes it, and he places his hand, his, right, his left hand on the Bible, and his right hand up, and he takes the oath of office, at 12.01 p.m. on that day, he is now the president of the United States. And if he's lucky, he has eight years to be in that position. And every single time he walks into a room, everybody stands because of the power of his office. Everybody honors his position. They all stand when he comes into a room. Then when he's being driven somewhere, he never has to drive. He just gets in the car. Someone else opens the door. He sits down. They drive. They've got, they've got policemen on motorcycles in front and in behind, and he never waits at a red light. How many of you would say, that would be fun? I don't know about you, but I like that. I hate red lights. So he never waits at a red light. Every light, he just goes through, and people just, they have to stop for him. There goes the president. Then He has his own 747 plane that he gets to ride on. Not only that, when he gets on the plane, he sits down in his seat and he calls the the front of the plane to the cockpit and says, we can go now. And they don't make him wait in line at JFK. Frontline service. In fact, he doesn't need to go through security. He doesn't have to take his shoes off in TSA. If he did, he'd probably change some of those rules, but he doesn't need to do any of that sort of stuff, right? Pardon me while I get my shoe back on just like at the airport. So he doesn't have to do any of those things. So, but this thing he knows, there's coming a day at 12.01 p.m. where his office is no longer his. He gets one more complimentary ride in that car, one more complimentary ride on that airplane, and then they drop him off and say, you're going to have to wait at a red light on your way home. Sorry. (laughs) Oh, yeah, and you're going to have to go back through security again. And I I guarantee there's a part within those guys who hold that office, there haven't been many of them, that there's a part that says, I'd like to hang on to this. I'd like to hang on to this. Why? Because that's our nature. And here's the King of kings, the Lord of glory, occupying a throne in heaven. He did not consider robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking on the form of a bondservant, coming in the likeness of men. God became a man, being found in appearance as a man. He then humbled himself even lower, became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Now, probably the greatest illustration of this is what we see in John's gospel in John chapter 13. You may remember the story. On the night that Jesus was betrayed by Judas and arrested by the detail of the Roman soldiers with the chief priest. Jesus is with his disciples partaking of a meal, and before they partake, he gets up, puts a towel on, and washes his disciples' feet. This is so out of place that one of his disciples, Peter, who was vying to be the greatest, (laughs) 
said, not so, Lord. You're not supposed to be doing this. He recognized that this was not the position of the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords. After Jesus said this, in John chapter 13, verses 12 through 14, he sits back down and he says to his disciples, you call me Rabbi and Lord. Now, Rabbi and Lord did not go together with what he just did. You call me Rabbi and Lord, and you say, well, for so I am. That, that's who I am. I'm your teacher. I'm your Lord. I'm not supposed to be doing that. Now, then he says, I've given you an example. If I, being your Lord and Rabbi, if I have done this, then you also ought to do as I have done. Now, Jesus is not instituting a sacrament of washing feet. He's giving an example of if our Lord, the King of glory, comes and humbles himself in that manner, then we who are to be great in his kingdom ought to do so as well. So notice this. Back to Philippians chapter 2. Look at verse 9. What's the first word that you see? Therefore. So Jesus did all this. He made himself of no reputation, took on the form of a servant, became in the likeness of man, humbled himself to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Therefore, verse 9, therefore, God the Father has also highly, what? Exalted him and given him a name which is above every name. His name is above every name, which is why some people that don't like him use his name as a curse word to express disgust. You see, the fact that people use Jesus' name to express disgust as a, as a curse word shows us just how powerful that name is. How so, you ask? Well, I've never heard it. Maybe you have. But I've never heard anyone going about saying, oh, Miles de Benedictus. <laughs> no one's using my name as a curse word, right? Interesting thing is, no one's using your name as a curse word either. No one's even using Muhammad's name as a curse word because his name is lower than Jesus. God the Father has highly exalted him. Why? Because he humbled himself. He highly exalted him, given him a name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, someday, verse 10 is prophetic, there is coming day where every knee shall bow of those in heaven, those on earth, those under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. So even those who use his, his name as a, as a curse word to express disgust, they too will one day bow before him and profess him as Lord. God has highly exalted him, given him a name which is above every name. This is why Paul the Apostle would tell us in Ephesians chapter 5, verses 1 and 2, Therefore be imitators of God as dear children and walk in love, just as Christ also loved us and gave himself for us as an offering and a sacrifice to God. We're to imitate him. How does one become great in God's economy? Jesus didn't rebuke it. He didn't chastise his disciples for desiring it. He just said, this is the path, and it's a hard path to go. Why? Because it's countercultural and unnatural. Greatness in the kingdom of God does not come through works. It does not come through how well you've preached before thousands or how many people have come to faith because of the things that you've said. It's not because of the position that you held in some corporate business. It's not because of the mission trip that you went on. Greatness in the kingdom of God does not come by any of those things. Servants, saints, although once sinners, now just sinners saved by grace. You see, the Bible tells us at the end of the Bible, in the book of Revelation, that there's a book in heaven called the book of life. And in that book are the names of those who have been given life 
by the King of Kings. You see, because of our flesh, there's desire. Because of our sin nature, there's a desire in every single one of us to be great. And greatness in this life, it's temporary. It will pass away because this world is passing away and all the desires of this world with it. But greatness in eternity, it comes only one way. How does one become worthy of note? How does one's name come to be written in the book of life for eternity? It's not by your works, but it's by putting your faith, your trust in the work that Jesus did. Wholly leaning upon him for salvation. And then he makes us great. He makes us what we need to be to show forth his greatness, just as Jesus said to Peter and others with him, Come, follow me, and I will make you. For them, he said, I'll make you fishers of men, but he made them great for his glory. Not for Peter's glory, not for James, John, Bartholomew, Thomas, but for his glory. How does one become great? How does one become worthy of note in the kingdom of God? By putting their trust in the work that Jesus did on the cross. Would you stand with me as we close in prayer? Father, I thank you that there is a book with you in eternity. And in that book, based on what I see in your word here, my name is written there not because of anything I've done, but because of what you have done. Jesus, I thank you for salvation. I thank you that you have made it so that these names would be written here in this passage of Scripture telling us about people who are sinners saved by grace, who are saints that served the church, that comforted the body of Christ, that sacrificed for your name. And that's not what really made them great. What made them great was you in their lives. And although we may never see these names in any secular history book, although they were probably not powerful or great in their day, that people knew who they were in the Roman Empire, their names are written in Scripture and their names are written in the book of life. And although we standing here today may never be great or worthy of note in our culture and in our day, we may never see our name on a billboard, we may never hear of our name on the news, we may never have two million hits on YouTube or whatever it may be, but God, may it be that our names are known by you in heaven. May it never be that we experience like the seven sons of Sceva in the book of Acts that they tried to cast out a demon by the Jesus whom Paul preached and the demon said, Jesus I know and Paul I know, but who are you? God, may it be that our names are known in eternity because of you. And Lord, may it be that your name is made known through us. That if anyone gets the glory, it's you through our lives. We praise and thank you, Jesus.